Welcome to HIV Update, a podcast for people who help people with HIV. Brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center. Here's your host, Bob Sidlow. Hello. Welcome to HIV Update, a podcast series for medical providers, nurses, and community health workers. The goal of this program is to inform and share best practices related to care for people with HIV and is brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center, a regional partner of the New England AIDS Education and Training Center. I'm Bob Sidlow, your host, the director of the Connecticut AETC. I'll be joined by my co-host, Sharon McKay, a curriculum development and evaluation specialist with Connecticut AETC. Hi, welcome to HIV Update. We're pleased today to have as our guest, Dr. Tamara Taggart, an assistant professor in the Department of Prevention and Community Health at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. She studied sociology, African studies, and African-American studies at Dartmouth, and then she got her MPH at Columbia, followed by a PhD in health behavior at UNC Chapel Hill. She did postdoctoral work at Yale in the Center for Interdisciplinary Research on AIDS and is now in her faculty role at George Washington University, where she conducts research on the impacts of social, structural, and cultural determinants, including neighborhood factors, structural racism, stigma, and cultural identities on HIV-related behaviors in racial and ethnic minority young people. Welcome, Dr. Taggart. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and to chat with you all. Thanks. So can you tell us, how did you get interested in this work? Sure. Um, so as you introduced, I'm interested in social and structural and, and cultural de determinants of health inequities. And, you know, what I find kind of interesting about HIV is that we are quite knowledgeable about HIV transmission. Right. We know the behavioral risk factors and the ways in which someone acquires HIV is the same. And yet we see these persistent inequities across different groups. And that, you know, that challenged me and it led me to think about, well, if the behaviors are the same and the transmission to acquisition is the same, what's different? What's driving these inequities? And to me, that's really tied to social structure and, and cultural factors. So thinking about distributions of power, resources, opportunities of the social environments in which people are, are living and in experiencing. And so that's what really got me interested in thinking about social structure and thinking about social determinants and really uh, unique and important ways. More personally, you know, I've seen how HIV has affected people that I care about and people in their lives and, you know, the fear that people have to really just be themselves and, and to live their, their truest self. And so for me, my desire, my purpose, what I feel really called to is to be part of this work and, and to impact change. Since your research is so interdisciplinary, what would you say is the main disciplinary lens that you hold up as you're doing the work that you're doing? That's a great question. I think that lens has changed and shift over time a bit. Uh, but arguably, I would say I'm a social and behavioral health scientist. So I focus on multi-level lens of health, um, and that's kind of the lens and focus I take. And I, I primarily try to understand how 
individual practices or behaviors, psychosocial challenges, community level factors, and, and really social determinants of health, how these interact or um, intersect to influence health. And then I subsequently develop interventions and evaluate interventions to address these barriers to health. Um, and, and did you spend some time at the Center for Disciplinary Research on AIDS at Yale um, here in Connecticut? Um, how, do, how do you think that time impacted uh, or what did you gain from that time at Yale that contributes to the work that you're doing now at CIRA, not Yale, at CIRA? Um, They're one and the same. I mean, I think yeah. that's one of actually the the great things about that postdoc and about being at CIRA is that you do have access to the resources at the, you know, at Yale University as a whole. And so there are a number of people doing amazing work around neighborhoods and um, social factors um, and that you have access to their work, to their methodologies, to, you know, amazing resources to help develop, at least for me, to help me develop that research um, uh, paradigm and to develop that research portfolio. Uh, so Sierra for me and, and my postdoc was an, a really an amazing opportunity. My mentor uh, is Trace Kershaw, who is the director of that train of the training grant that I was on. And so, you know, not only was I surrounded by these you know, brilliant thinkers and, and research practitioners across a number of different disciplines that were focused on HIV and focused on addressing HIV-related disparities. But because of the nature of Sierra and that center, I was also embedded in um, with a group of people who were committed to implementation science, to community-based work, to integrating different uh, community strategies with our sort of research lens. And so I got to experience not just the research focus, but also this kind of larger um, center focus and, and really see how my work can be part of a larger strategy to addressing HIV disparities. So in a lot of your work, you use a methodology that's referred to as an activity space. Could you describe what that means for our listeners? Sure. So activity spaces are really about understanding how neighborhood and social environments influence people's health. And so you can ask someone, you know, where do you go in a typical week? Who are you with or who do you meet? at those locations and what are you doing or experiencing in a space? Um, so, think, it's, so it's yeah. about really like understanding um, all the different types of interactions that people are having as a way to try to identify like where they might be experiencing like stigma or something like that. Is that the idea? Somewhat, it's really around interactions that are neighborhoods, the people that you're around and the behaviors that you're engaging with. So certainly stigma, racism, those can all be parts of those larger interactions. And um, am I correct that you actually like really uh, with a high amount of resolution like to map out people's activities? Yes. So there's a number of different methods that you can use for activity spaces. I'm, <laughs> I use a, a kind of an old school method of literally a, a map based survey or questionnaire and having people pinpoint where do they go in a typical week and then asking them questions, you know, how often do you go there? Uh, how much time do you spend there? 
who are you with from your social network? What are you all doing and what are you experiencing? However, you know, you can, um, there are a number of different types of, of technologies that are available to collect these types of data. So you can do sort of GPS enabled devices, right? Think your cell phone. Um, you can do apps or um, even daily assessments. So think uh, ecological momentary assessments. And you can couple those with GPS devices and really get this real-time subjective experience over, over space. Um, you can do wearable devices, so even separate web wearable devices that allow you to generate the spatial and, and temporal, right? This question of timing and how much time you spend in a space is just as important as where you go in a space. That can really help you understand um, the environments, the social and structural environments to which people are um, exposed to and interact with and how those are likely different from maybe their residential environments, which is what a lot of neighborhoods and health research largely started focusing on. Sounds like a lot of work on the part of participants. I just want to that out. How do you assess the quality of the information you get when you have a lot of um, you know, a lot of participants, a lot of workers, people working on this kind of project. How do you assess the quality of the information you get? Yeah, so I would say yes and no. This is again where technology has been very kind to us in terms of the access to um, cell phones and to GPS data and to some of the ease in which we can make it for participants. Uh, as you sort of mentioned at the start, I work with young people. Young people tend to be quite formulaic about where they go and who they spend their time with. Um, I focus in on a week period or, you know, with some uh, of the research with wearable devices, they may look at a two-week period and use that to help understand what people are doing in their, their typical lives. So it's about recognizing that while you do receive a lot of information, especially if you're using kind of GPS-enabled devices, if you shorten the duration to which you're looking at, you can really have um, some strong quality data. You know, there's also been, I've been reading some interesting uh, work around using Twitter and geotagged social network data even to help capture where people are going and who they're with. Uh, so, you know, I think leaning in a bit into some of the technology that's available that can support this work is quite helpful. On my end, I actually take a kind of low tech like I said, I have a, a map and ask people to tell me where they're going and, and point it out on a map and, and go from there. Um, Old school work too. Right? <laughs> Pen and paper, always solid. But have you, uh, but have you been collecting data from like uh, geolocators and things like that? So I haven't done that with my work. Uh, I've largely used uh, map-based kind of questionnaires or surveys. I have uh, had the opportunity to collaborate with folks who have used apps or even wearable devices, GPS-enabled wearable devices. Uh, in another project that ties activity spaces with um, photo voice, I've used GPS-enabled cameras uh, to help participants sort of take photos and um, connect those photos to specific locations. So I, I, I think what, as you were talking about some of the technology, I was just thinking about 
because I love data, right? <laughs> so I'm like, this is yes. <laughs> very big data very quickly. Right? Yes, yes. And so that's where at least I find it very helpful to orient people to a specific period or time. So even with, even if you are pen and paper, I'm thinking in a typical week, where are you going? What does your lived experience look like from a day to day? And that usually doesn't have as much variability as we would like to think in terms of the environments in which people are in and the people that they spend time with. That's interesting. Um, it, it makes me wonder though, um, so doing it with self-reports, you're getting uh, you know, what the what uh, subjects are thinking is salient and important, right? In terms of their activities and well, so you use um, kind of generating questions, right? So it's uh, it's not just sort of sit down on this map and point out places, but I like to integrate kind of qualitative methods with the mapping exercises. So I'll ask them, you describe your typical week to me, you know, where, where do you fr your friends go? Um, they do a social network inventory and focusing on an egocentric network. So I'm saying, well, where, are you, where do you in person A or B, what do you all do together? where where do you all spend time together are you at his house her house you know and so you ask questions that get people thinking about what they're doing right if nothing else i always start with the basics of well, where do you live where where do your friends live do you go there uh you know where where's uh do you do you work and if so where is work and you can get people talking in that way and then once people start talking like we would do with any type of interview or even a, any survey you know we don't start with our our hardest questions first we start with sociodemographic questions the things that are very easy for people to pull out once you get people embedded into the the questions they start to open up you know, I, I think while you were talking about it, I, I, got, I found myself thinking, I wonder, and I wonder if this has ever happened. I wonder if this has ever come out in any of your interviews. I, I wonder if there are people who, you know, they have these places they go and these interactions that they have, but there's something that is an unnoticed part of that, that actually impacts them more than they realize you know, like every day when I walk to this place to hang out with my friends, I go by this, you know, little store where they have something in the window that's offensive. You, you know, like and you, don't, you, you don't even realize it, but there it is every day, every day. Do you ever see stuff like that? These sort of yes. things? Yeah, I, I'm smiling because our team, we just submitted a paper on this very uh, question. And so part of the work that I did with activity spaces in New Haven was around not only looking at spaces where um, people engage in substance use, but asking them about their experiences of racial discrimination and really trying to understand the context in which uh, racial discrimination occurs and sort of labeling certain spaces as racially discriminatory neighborhood environments. And so part of what came out of that work from, again, this integration of qualitative and mapping and quantitative data were um, young men were talking about traveling to places. So not necessarily what's happening at the place. People are sort of, 
with a few exceptions, sort of said, you know, this thing happened and I don't go there anymore. But really, what was it like to travel from my home to to work, to a friend's house, to a restaurant, to a bar, what have you? And the experiences, uh, whether it be with the police, with security, with, you know, certain um, places, as you mentioned, store windows, places, people that they frequently passed, how that was being um, quite a, a triggering experience for them. And so, we really started to probe about midway through in that project on this notion of the travel to the space, not just the space, but what are the environments and the, you know, the buffer around the space they're going to, what do those environments look like? So. This is so rich. The data set is just so, so It is. <laughs> it is. And you've done some work around PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and a project called PrEP Your Step. Right. Can you describe that project for us? Sure. So, sure, sure. So Prep Your Step is a crowdsourcing or open contest uh, project that took place in Washington, D.C., and it was in partnership with investigators with the D.C. Center for AIDS Research and community partners here and was largely around understanding two questions. One, um, generating prep promotion materials for young people in this area. So, you know, how can we utilize community-based strategies to develop uh, prep promotion materials? And then the second was then around understanding kind of the feasibility of using this open contest approach, right? This crowdsourcing approach to, to develop these materials to engage young people in HIV prevention uh, research. So tell me, why did you choose this method instead of a more traditional focus group approach? Uh, so with crowdsourcing, you're able to capture a large cross-section uh, of the population, right? So with focus groups, we there are only so many focus groups that we can hold. And oftentimes they take a long time there. You may only hear from the loudest voices. Um, and with crowdsourcing, it allows you to hear from a, a greater cross-section of people who may be affected by the work that you're doing. And so it's not just your target population, but you're hearing from creatives, you're hearing from allies, you're hearing from people who are you know, closely affected by HIV or, or are passionate about HIV prevention. And so my colleagues and I, and specifically um, some of my colleagues who've done a lot of work around crowdsourcing have found that these materials often are more reflective of um, local culture and norms. They resonate more with people as compared to some of the traditional, um, traditionally developed uh, HIV prevention, in this case, PrEP promotion materials. They're, um, they engage more people, right? And certainly thinking in the time of COVID, they allow for a 100% sort of digital technology type of uh, data collection that especially working with young people is appealing. Um, so I think the, those are some of the strengths. And this isn't to say we no longer hold focus groups or any of those more traditional types of um, community engaged approaches to collecting data. It's just to say this is another option, another tool in our toolbox that we can use. And, and especially with some of the younger crowd that you're working with, the technology of the overlay is something that's accessible to them and embraced by them already. Exactly. Um, and so there, it's their accustomed, as you said before, like workspace or area uh, activity space. It's, that's their space. 
exactly. Do you think that um, their engagement in the process, I mean, it seems like the engagement of people in the prep your step model would be much deeper than it would be in a traditional focus group. Do you think that actually can have an impact on? No, you know, I think so. Uh, We found in particular, because of the types of, it's a stage process, right? It's a contest. And so you're uh, asking people to respond to a question, you know, a contest entry, we'll say, just to keep the language the same. Then you're asking people to vote on their winning um, contest entry, their winning responses. And then as a community, you're celebrating those winners, right? There are prizes, community partners are celebrating them on their social media. And so there's um, a level of fun, for lack of a better word, there's some fun to it. There's, um, you know, there's a, a bit of nuance and novelty to it that I think attracts, especially young people, but attracts people in general and allows for greater and perhaps even more authentic engagement, right? Um, Yeah, I actually, I have to say, when I heard about this project, I went in to see if I could (laughs) submit I was not at the right, our target group, and you'd already finished the project. Yeah, but but please feel free. Our our website is still open. Feel free to send suggestions and ideas. Um, That's the beauty of crowdsourcing. You know, yes, we're focused on our target population, and that's who's final, you know, has the final say and final voice, but idea generation can happen uh, across multiple sectors. That's what we want to see. So I'm curious, how did you recruit the people that were involved in this? Sure. Uh, So we started with um, a community advisory board or or youth steering committee, as we we call them. And they were youth who we uh, recruited through some community partners, folks who do work with young people in D.C. around um, sexual health, around substance use, mental health, not just prep. We wanted to get a good cross-section of youth. Um, They referred some of their friends, so it wasn't just the youth who were involved, but that we could get youth who were, um, you know, of mixed experiences and exposures. And so uh, we started with them, and they worked with us in terms of um, helping us refine our recruitment strategies, our flyers, you know, the prep your step, just that name. You know, that was all driven from them. What what our logo looked like, what our website looked like, what kind of content we talked about, what our question was and, and what we proposed to the community. So already it's way more than a focus group. <laughs> right. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so and subsequently we recruited through community partners. We recruited through some of the standard ways in which one recruits, you know, venues when we were able to be in person safely, venues in which young people are at, um, through social media, through local influencers who, you know, have a, a good following of young people and who are like, this was, this is cool. This is awesome. I want to support this work. What criteria did you establish for evaluating the submissions of the uh, entrants? 
Yeah, so crowdsourcing has been used quite a bit in international settings. And so there's a number of um, articles that are available that talk about utilizing different types of um, criteria for evaluation. Um, additionally, some of the co-investigators on this project had also had experience with evaluating crowdsource materials. So we started with those and then we engaged our youth steering committee and we asked them, you know, here's what we're thinking. Here are some of the questions we would ask, here's the scale, what makes sense to you? What doesn't make sense? Uh, what do you think would be good questions to have? And so we took that question bank and um, discussed it with our, our co-investigators um, and really then refined it down to about 15 questions. And that's the criteria that we used. And so some questions were related to relevance. Some questions were related to accuracy, right? You know, it has to be accurate information. Sure, sure. Um, some were related to catchy and, you know, was it a catchy slogan and, and how responsive was it to the question, things like that. Oh, and what, what do you do to evaluate the efficacy of the project among those who are directly involved in the wider community? Like, how do you evaluate that effect yeah. effectiveness? Yeah, so this project is really kind of a, a, it's a pilot project. And so we can think of this as almost a feasibility study, right? So we looked at our engagement. We looked at our web analytics, for example, to see uh, reach. We looked across both our website and our social media. We uh, used uh, surveys of folks who had participated and even some qualitative interviews. Uh, we worked with our community partners. They also served as judges along with our steering committee. Um, and then even when we put those top five um, responses out for popular vote, we tied it to a survey as well. So we were trying to understand as much as possible how feasible is this type of project for engaging young people in D.C. around PrEP. Uh, we tried to also understand some of the messaging preferences and channel preferences and, you know, how well does the crowdsourced uh, messages resonate with individuals. And then our, our last question around kind of, you know, efficacy was really more related to what kind of impact does participating in this type of study have on, our, on the individuals who decided to participate, right? So, you know, did it and motivate them to learn more about PrEP? Did it motivate them to talk to uh, their sexual partners, a clinician, a trusted adult about PrEP? You know, what was this experience like for them? So those were some of the questions that we asked. I think more big picture, we have been able to take what we've learned because I think sometimes we hear feasibility and we kind of roll our eyes a little and think, oh, right. what's the point, <laughs> right? Uh, but we were able to take what we've learned and, and use it in other crowdsourcing projects. So for example, we partnered with a um, team of people with the health department and community partners and people at GW around vaccine hesitancy for COVID-19. Um, we're now engaged in a project around U equals you and combating community stigma with crowdsource oh, messages that's in Baltimore and in DC. So, you know, those are other projects that are larger and allow for greater evaluation. Um, so it's not just the feasibility. Which is kind of like a snapshot to see how this, you know, this concept works. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah, that, I think the Prep Your Step is just such a great project. And I'm really so excited to hear that, you know, you're using that methodology in other ways. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, there have been lots of messaging. that has been a lot of messaging done over the years about, 
HIV, about prevention, about testing, and now about PrEP. Was there a message that your participants came up with that was really different than messaging, than traditional messaging that could maybe even surprise you? Like how, how were they different messages? A great question. Um, Sharon, you, you're coming in with these. Um, I think, you know, so we actually analyzed all of the contest entries that we received. We did a content analysis to understand what are the themes, what are, uh, what are some of the, the common messages that were coming across from people who participated. And I think the most surprising would be those that were around accountability both in terms of the accountability that you have to yourself, but the accountability that you have to others. And to see young people kind of thinking about messaging that ties to accountability is uh, is exciting to see. Oh, <laughs> Not yeah. something that we often yeah. think <laughs> about for you know people who are, this is 16, 16 to 29, not a, a group that we think about in this way. Uh, also, new, there were- It's a new generation, you never know. It really <laughs> is, it really is. Um, and then also, and I don't know that it's necessarily surprising, but maybe the ways that it was being conveyed, the normalizing of PrEP and sexual health, right? So these messages that we're saying that this, this is normal, and this even came out in our qualitative interviews, post-contest post interviews, normalizing PrEP, normalizing sexual health as part of a regular being a healthy person. There's nothing special or unique about PrEP. It is part of what we do to be healthy. That's so, that's so uh, heartening to hear. Um, and it reminds me of the, um, the, um, was it the prep prep for love? Yes. Yes. Yeah, which also does the same thing, which was a really great and really interesting social media campaign, um, where they really normalized the sexual components of, um, exactly. Yeah. And especially for when it's geared towards younger people, yeah. right. We're, we're still in a, a space of, some trepidation and, and conservatism around young people and sexual practices. And so seeing and hearing young people say, we want to have messaging that normalizes sexual health, sexual practices, PrEP is encouraging. Yeah, and in their, in their own wording, like in their own wording choices, sometimes really, really key for them exactly. to be able to have the key, not just to, but the content, but that, that their choice of words can be so powerful as well. Yes. You've, you've used a number of research, uh, a number of methods, including um, in your research, including focus groups, surveys, and eventual crowdsourcing, your Prep Your Step project, and other stuff, um, to approach the problem of prep utilization among young Black and Latinx people. What do you think are the most common barriers to prep among this population, these populations? Uh, so I would say we still have a, a lot to do to combat stigma and racism and really around um, not just HIV related stigmas, but uh, really focusing on stigmas that are related to how people identify and who they are. Uh, and especially for young people, when that's a time when you're trying to figure things out for yourself yeah. and how you fit in this world and it's a time when you're beginning to be more autonomous and you know explore your environments and uh in more um unique ways and so i think we have to be more um 
specific in, in addressing these barriers related to stigma, barriers related to structural racism and discrimination. Uh, we have to continue to challenge this thinking. And it's a thinking that permeates through our policies and uh, you know organizational guidelines, but prevention does not equal riskier behaviors. Uh, so as you said, I spent my, my graduate studies, at least my PhD in North Carolina. And I was, you know, I almost chuckle when I think back to the years that I spent just trying to have remove abstinence only education to think yeah. that in my lifetime, that would be work that I would be engaged in, in, in high schools, right? Providing accurate, comprehensive sexual health education is public health work. And we need to be um, more direct around what those barriers are for young people, increasing access, increasing awareness, um, and really kind of challenging some of these laws, these antiquated laws that make it hard for people to adhere to PrEP, to access the strategies that are needed for PrEP, and um, to even learn about PrEP, especially young people. True enough, true enough. What do you think are some simple steps that we could take like here in Connecticut uh, to, to help overcome some of these barriers? And they may be um, public health level, uh, they could be uh, like we could we do a lot of training of um, clinical providers. You know, is there something we could help people learn more about so that their clinical encounters are more efficacious in this way? People on PrEP. I love the work that you all do and the resources that you provide for uh, clinicians, not just even in Connecticut, but your resources are available for everywhere. And I, and I think that's a, a wonderful, great place for us to start. Um, those of us that find ourselves in regions that have these types of resources, have these trainings, have these support, make these more available to people who may be in other areas in which they're, they're not available. We have to begin with uh, implementing status neutral care, right? We have to start with HIV testing. It's part of your everyday testing practices when you go to a, a clinician. And we have to be uh, a bit more broad with what we and who we define as the clinician and the clinician encounter, right? So it could be primary care, it could be urgent care, it could be emergency department, it could be an OBGYN, but we need to be looking at how um, clinical encounters across the clinical space occur and where are there are opportunities in which we can exercise status neutral care. Uh, specifically thinking about young people and, and the people that I, I work with, we need to provide safe spaces. We need to provide safe and affirming space, spaces, and we need to start doing that work earlier. Um, so I think about, and this is a story I often share, I you know, grew up going to a pediatrician, suburban pediatrics, and I remember when I was about 13, you know, your parents always goes with you into the doctor's office. And my mom is a nurse. And so she definitely knew exactly what to ask and what was going on. And I remember the moment when my pediatrician said, you know, it's time for Tamara to come 
to the doctor, you know, for her to be by herself with me. And so I looked at my mom and I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. What am I supposed to do? And so I went and I had my doctor's visit and we talked about things. And then yeah, afterwards, my mom came in and then they taught you know, with me there. They talked about things. But my doctor made sure that I knew that the conversation that I had with him was just between the two of us. And he was instilling in me that practice and that belief, right, of trusting providers and identifying trusted providers. We need to be doing those things. Um, community that's, partnerships. Oh, sorry. That's that, that's a really beautiful story. Does that do you uh, so do you think that happens a lot or do you think that's sort of unusual? I don't think it happens a lot at all. I later discovered uh, the, and he has passed away to reading stories about Dr. Hyman. He was outside of the box. And especially um, I, I went, I grew up in Ohio. So a very kind of conservative in the eighties and nineties an extremely conservative space and remains one. And so he was someone who was pushing um, pushing the envelope. But those are the types of things we need to advocate for. We need to provide greater support and information for families you know, so that they can communicate with their, their young people and can be um, supportive of their young people. And on the flip side, we need to help young people identify trusted adults when their family structures aren't providing that. You know, we need to continue to do community partnerships and community work and really advocate for structural changes. Do you think there's any benefit in trying to... Uh trying to promote PrEP awareness and HIV awareness more generally among like public school teachers or administrators, people who um, may be in the position your doctor was in to be able to have a, a private conversation. <laughs> Very much so. In the same ways that we ask them to promote health as in general, you know, in DC, there's been quite a bit of work around behavioral health and mental health support and training for teachers and public schools and partnering with um, behavioral health, uh, the Department of Behavioral Health here at local health department as well as um, providers within school systems. And so in a similar vein, we can be doing these same practices when it comes to sexual health, when it comes to PrEP and HIV. And I, again, I want to stress, I don't want it to be something where everywhere you turn around, all of a sudden, all you see is HIV. That isn't the answer. However, talking to young people about how to make healthy decisions changing the environments in which they're in such that health, healthy decisions are the norm and are easy to do and are, you know, opportunities are equally distributed for that to happen are things that we can do. You know, this needs to be part of a larger conversation of how do we engage people in health and ensure that we have adults who understand science and understand public health and right. understand. Sexual, right. Sexual health is healthcare. Uh, and it's really important to provide the emphasis for that. Um, so many uh, providers have their own biases about sexuality and having sexual conversations and the uh, ability to take a comprehensive sexual health history in a way that it makes the patient comfortable um, and you asking permission, developing that sort of trust. There's some key factors around sexual health and sexual health history taking that will um, re result in success uh, of uh, helping somebody maintain uh, quality uh, health, sexual health 
um, or put them at risk because their uh, trust has been broken or they feel insecure in disclosing personal information to their provider. Um, and it certainly gets challenging in the federal qualified health center arena because many health centers have turnover of prim um, primary care provider staff. Um, or it may be that they have the same string of them, but you see six different people across the course of a year. And so there, um, you may or may not get asked those kinds of questions on any visit ever. Um, and so uh, it's important to incorporate how we think about uh, health in general, and you know, just to add into the pile one more time that you know, sexual health is part of healthcare. Um, and you know, these the research studies and the projects that you're working on, which I hope other places are um, looking to replicate, and we certainly have places here in Connecticut that are doing social media. A lot of places, actually, it turns out, more than we ever expected. Um, yes, that research will help. <laughs> Um, to uh, give them a, a, a template, one version or one template to look at and making sure that the community voice is brought to the table and helps shape the message because that really um, does uh, involve engagement or um, success in the message being received and acted upon, um, which is ultimately what you're looking for is acknowledgement, education, and then um, potential action right there at your right. call and to get them to go get screened for, for prep and, and maybe initiated or whatever, so. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think we also, you know, in thinking as you were commenting around the role of providers, I think we also have to stress that providers play a role in, in the policies that we have within the U.S. and in the actions and deliverables that we make. One, ending the HIV epidemic um, strategies thus far do not hold a space for education or sexual health, comprehensive sexual health education. Um, and especially when we think about adolescents and young people, that's a missed opportunity. And then yeah. two, when we look at state laws related to um, how PrEP is categorized, uh, some states still refer to it as HIV treatment. And so if you are under the age of majority, you would need parental consent. Um, HIV testing and the availability of testing for young people. These are things in which providers, you know, we may have to continue to partner with community partners, providers, and academia to really push back on what some of these laws and guidelines are and how they are, are barriers to young people accessing sexual health care. You know, one uh, consideration around ordering PrEP for, in Connecticut, we have a PrEP for adolescents is um, there are some insurance reasons why is some insurances that will um, uh, adolescent, so first of all, adolescents can receive PrEP in Connecticut and, um, but the cost of it can be a, a, an issue if a, pa a patient is under 18 and on their parents' insurance, 26 for that matter, on their parents' insurance, um, and uh, the parents get the explanation of benefits disclosing the medication and the diagnosis code, um, which is, uh, you know, and, and yet there are, the state insurance does not send um, in Connecticut, I don't, I, um, they don't send that information to the parent. Parent doesn't actually get to see the medical record. So, that's, uh, you know, those who are 18 and up, but not, but on parents insurance, the access to, um, to medications that can help is a, a contributory factor as well. So there's so many layers of things, mm -hmm. um, maybe, you know, um, including occasional social messaging, but the community has to say, I can't pay for it, and then develop messaging around insurance barriers and explanations. Right, so, right. Insurance barriers and other uh, resources that are available to help you. So, you know, in DC, we have prepped app, and that's, you know, a, a way in which we can um, 
in which the local health department and other resources offset the cost of PrEP. Other places have similar types of programs, sure. drug assistance programs, sorry for using, <laughs> combining too many acronyms in one, uh, PrEP drug assistance program. We know that some of the pharmaceutical companies offer similar types of programs right. across the medications that they provide. So you know, we have to continue to push back on, on these types of barriers, whether it be insurance barriers, whether it be about, um, you know, Medicaid and Medicare and other federally um, supported insurance programs. Work still needs to be done. There's lots of it out there. Yes, and we and I just I think that your work with activity spaces and with developing um, messaging with the with the target audience is really um, is a really exciting new um, new. Um, research area that will give us a lot more information, I think, about barriers and about possible ways to break them down and deliver better advocacy. Exactly. Are there any um, projects or particular things that you see in the future around social media that you can tip us off to now? Since this sure. Um, so in terms of my work, I've been really thinking about um, how do you use crowdsourcing uh, as a whole, this type of crowdsourcing and integration of social media and digital technologies to engage communities and other aspects of research? Um, so thinking about, um, so in terms of interventions, right, we have some a toolkit of proven effective HIV prevention and treatment interventions, but sometimes they're focused on uh, certain populations. And so how can we use crowdsourcing as a community engaged strategy to understand how to adapt those interventions um, and, and really sort of um, create more authentic interventions that are community driven, still based on evidence-based principles, but that allow for a greater community voice and how we go about adapting them for their use in other groups. I think we're seeing quite a bit around how do we combat misinformation and disinformation. Um, and certainly that comes through within HIV when we think about stigma and, and community level stigma. And so how can we use social media um, strategies and, and crowdsourcing being part of those strategies to address community level stigma? Um, that is a, a barrier that not only leads to internalizations of stigma, but as a barrier to people engaging in care as a whole. So I think those are some of the ways in which we can really start thinking about using social media. Lastly, I would say, I think it allows us to have a good understanding of what are some of the norms. Thinking back to your question, Sharon, about what was I surprised about from what some of the young people were creating as their prep messages and what they were hitting on. And so I think social media does provide an opportunity for us to see what are some of the trends and norms that are occurring and the ways in which people are talking about certain technologies and innovations and how can we get ahead of what may be misconceptions or what may be opportunities for us to, to um, you know, attach more positive spin. Again, I state not to be a complete <laughs> record over and over, but until we start focusing on those social, structural, and cultural factors, whatever the, the method, whatever the technology, whatever the advancement we have, we'll continue to see persistent disparities. Dr. Taggart, uh, it has been so fun talking with you. I This is such an interesting topic. You're doing such interesting groundbreaking work and using social media in new ways and engaging people in new ways in this important, important effort. Um, thank you so much for joining us uh, and talking with us today. This has um, just been really great.
Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. This was fantastic. Uh, thank you so much.